We have been studying Paul, and it's been a delightful study for me, at least, as, as I've studied through the material that I've been presenting you. Uh, we have been studying through his life. We've got Paul in prison now in Rome, awaiting his appeal before Caesar. The year is around 60 A.D. And, uh, and as I started to write the lesson, I started thinking back about what my life, what, what changes I've seen in, in my life in my 47 years. And, you know, I sit here right now and I've got this Mac Air, which is like an incredible computer. And... Um, I mean, it's, it's like an incredible computer, and since this goes on the Internet, I'm basically advertising for them, so maybe they'd like to send each member of our class one. As, <laughs> if anybody at Apple is listening to these lessons, we're at Champion Forest Baptist Church. The address is there. Um, but it's a wonderful tool, and it makes it really nice and easy for me to do my lessons, and I really enjoy it a lot. But I can remember when I first moved to Houston, uh, my secretary, and, and I was at a big firm, it was one of the largest firms at the time in the world. My secretary at the law firm where I went to work typed on an IBM Selectric. It was 1984, and they didn't have word processing computers yet for the secretaries. And IBM Selectric, one of the fellows I sent my lessons out, sends lessons out to on Saturday to read them, Ken Dye wrote me back and he said, I really thought I'd made it when I got an IBM Selectric. I thought nothing could ever get better in life. And that was, that was the machine. If you're too young to remember it, it was the machine. But I can go back further than that. I wish I had an ability on PowerPoint to put odors. Because I could put the mimeograph odor of that purple ink. And all of you would know exactly what it was if you're old enough to remember the mimeographs. That's before, young boys and girls, Xerox machines. And our teachers would hand us out work in school that had this purple smelly ink. They were mimeographs, and that's how they made multiple copies. Multiple copies. How about before the copy machine this? You remember carbon paper? Okay, we've still got it. I've got it on my Apple computer. You've got it on your computer. It's Look, if I wanted to email you, this is what I pull up. Do you see that right there? CC. Do you know what CC stands for? Carbon copied. Because, young people, before the days of the copy machine, you put this piece of carbon paper between multiple pages you're typing or writing, and when you press down hard or the, the keyboard causes the whatever it is to hit hard, then it would push through to the carbon paper and that carbon would leave an imprint on the page behind. So if you wanted to send someone a copy of a letter, you put a CC because they were carbon copied. We don't carbon copy anymore. I don't. Why did they have CC up there? That's not a carbon copy. That's just a copy. It ought to say C. Down below it, nobody's being blind carbon copied either. It ought to just say, not 
BCC, but BC, blind copy. But anyway, that's the way we are today. Now, when Paul was around and when Paul was writing, he didn't have mimeograph machines. He didn't have carbon paper. He certainly didn't have the IBM Selectric. So what Paul was relegated to doing was a little bit different than me. Um, Lewis sent out some prayer requests to our class. We use the email addresses that we have available. Put yours down if you don't have one down. And with one swift email, he's able to copy everyone in the class that's in his directory. Bam! Just like that. You know, Paul didn't have that ability either. So here's Paul. And Paul's writing a letter that we call Ephesians. Now, if you recall, Ephesus was a central city in Asia Minor. And it really was a central city. It had the temple to Artemis, which was used as the bank in the region. It was the major port for the region. It was from Ephesus that Paul worked for over two years, and the gospel was spread throughout Asia Minor. If we were studying the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation there are the letters to the seven churches. Those are seven churches, one of them is Ephesus, six others around Ephesus. It's from Ephesus that Paul used as a home port for the gospel to be spread throughout all of what we consider now Asia Minor, what they called Asia. And so, if I use the Bible here for a second, we go to the letter that we call Ephesians. And I've got an English Standard Version of the Bible here. But the English Standard Version starts out and says, The letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Now, the letter itself, the original letter Paul wrote, probably never said anywhere in it to the Ephesians. Because it wasn't really just to the church at Ephesus. He wrote this letter, and if he'd had carbon copies, he would have carbon copied or CC'd a number of different churches. He wrote it for the whole churches in that region that he had known and loved and evangelized. And so... If you read, for example, here in the English Standard Version, they say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And you've got to kind of see that there is a footnote, footnote one, actually, yeah, there's the footnote one, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So that takes you down to the, I can't tear this, I'm going to figure out how to, no, that's not going to do it. Let's try it this way. You go down to the footnote one. Ah, there we go. Some manuscripts have saints who are also faithful, and they omit in Ephesus. And those are the older manuscripts. The odds are this was not something that was in the original, but it was something that was added later because the early church recognized that Paul meant it for the churches around Ephesus and they didn't want that fact to be lost. They wanted to be able to identify where the letter was. So in some early transcripts we have that. And with that, Paul starts his letter. Now, 
Paul starts writing the Ephesians with a blessing to God using the longest sentence I can think of in the Bible with one clause after another as if Paul cannot even stop to take a breath while he's dictating the beginning of this letter from his heartfelt praise to the Almighty Father who's touched, so touched Paul's life that he pours forth continually an unstoppable blessing after blessing realize scope in. I ran out of room. Paul starts Ephesians, if we were reading it in the Greek, with this massively long sentence. It's so long that the translators, even the most literal translators, break it up into sentences. Oh, they break it up into paragraphs. Paul's sentence starts out with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Look at this. Let's see if we can find this here. Okay, we have now... There we go. Here it is, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, no period yet. Comma. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Comma. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. They put a period there. Paul doesn't have a period. Paul keeps going. In love He predestined us for adoption as His sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Paul doesn't have a period there. He's still going. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of, of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth, Paul doesn't have a period there. He's still going. He's the ever-ready battery on this one. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, period, Paul doesn't have a period there. He's still going. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Period. Amen. Paul. Woo! Now, as we read that sentence, let's get the timeline down. We're here. 2008, Champion Forest Baptist Church, August 17th. Okay? Paul's writing about 60 A.D. Paul is talking about how God, blessed be God, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Who wants, show of hands, who wants Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Who wants them? Okay. You got them. You already have them. Paul uses a special kind of verb tense in the Greek called the aorist that points backwards. It means he's already done it. God has already blessed every believer with every spiritual blessing. It's already happened. You've got it. The money's in the bank. You just may not know to write checks on it. That deposit's been made. The money is in the bank. Live like it. 
Don't fear the ATM machine rejecting your card of spiritual blessings. It isn't going to happen. You've already been... Ha you have... When? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is what God was about. That's where God was giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He says, you've got it all. It's yours. Now, if you've got every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, let's break it down. Let's look at it. For example, did you know everyone who is born again Everyone has been chosen by God Almighty to be clean, to be holy, to be set apart, to be different. You're a believer. You, God chose you to be holy. God made a decision. He wants you clean. No pig pen. Clean, holy, set apart, different. Not only that, let me tell you another blessing. He's chosen you to be part of His family, adopted as sons and daughters. God has made a decision. He, you are in His family. He's made that decision. God has blessed you not only with that, but He's already blessed you with forgiveness. You have it. Your sins have been forgiven. They have. Even the ones you don't want to admit you have. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And these blessings God gave you, He didn't meet them out in small little drops. I'm going to give Him a little one today. He lavished it. It's overflowing. It's in excess. And this is the mystery that's been hidden for ages but is now revealed. And the word Paul uses uh, for mystery is mysterion. It, <laughs> close enough, huh? Mysterion, mystery. It means that it's something that, that we had hints about, something we suspected. I mean, God had the prophets out there proclaiming what was to come, but it's finally been revealed. These blessings, this life that we have, that were chosen by God. And Paul says, as a result of that, I pray for you. I pray that you'll grow in wisdom and understanding, in your knowledge and intimacy with Jesus. It's a terrific prayer in Ephesians 1, 16, 17, right in there. Praise that, that the Ephesians would grow in their wisdom and understanding. Grow to understand the riches that are in Christ Jesus. We're not paupers. You might say, well, uh, there's not a lot of money in it. That's money's money. That's not the kind of riches we've got. We've got riches that money can't buy. I can give you a list of wealthy people who think they can buy most anything, but are absolutely miserable. Because money cannot buy the blessings we have in Christ. I should have done a slide with uh, the MasterCard thing. You know, uh, Mac Air, $1,000. Um, shoes, $10. 
<laughs> Riches of Christian life, priceless. Money can't buy it. That's what you've got, but you've got more than that. You want to know what else you've got? If Paul prays that you'll grow in your understanding of this, because it doesn't come natural. We don't understand how rich we really are as Christians. We need to grow in our understanding of that. You and I do not really and fully understand the power of God that's working in our lives. We do not really fully understand the power of God at work in our lives. Paul prays that their knowledge of how God works in His power will grow. See, this power... Let me tell you how strong it is. It's not TNT strong. It's not even nuclear fusion strong. It's strong enough that it raises Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power that conquers the grave. Oh. But this resurrection power not only raises Jesus from the dead, it raises you and me from the death too. Because we're dead to our sins and trespasses. And through the resurrection power of God and Jesus Christ, we are resurrected from the dead into a new life. We are born again. We have a new life. That's the power at work within us. That's our salvation. Paul says, you've been saved by the gift of God and Jesus on the cross, the grace of Christ and God, the gift. That's what saved you. That resurrection power has, has taken death and sin and destroyed it on Calvary. And so you're saved by the grace of God, by the cross of Christ, through your faith and your trust. And the most wonderful part of this is God has saved us by His grace through our faith so that we can do the good things He has planned all along for us to do. We've been saved for a purpose. Now, if God, if you're a saved believer, if God has saved you, for the purpose of good works, do you not think He's going to give you enough power to do them? He's got enough power to save you. He's got resurrection power that saves Jesus, resurrects Jesus. He brings you from death and sin into life. Do you not think He empowers just enough to do His good deeds that He wants us to do? Paul says, this is a whole new world. And it is a, a world where God has changed the whole thing. You Jew and Gentile that used to fight, and the Jews saw the Gentiles as dogs and wouldn't have anything to do with them, and the Gentiles saw the Jews as a bunch of kooks. He says, understand the chasm and the antagonism between Jew and Gentile is nothing compared to the chasm and antagonism between God and fallen sinful humans. But through God's resurrection power, He took away... What separated mankind from Him? And if He took that away, how small is the difference between Jew and Gentile? It's all gone. Now, together we live in peace with God. That's the power at work. That's what He's doing. This wasn't some plan B. 
This was God's design and plan from before creation. In His omniscience, He knew about the fall of man. And before He created man, He knew that it would cost Him everything for redemption. But He did it anyway. Paul says, realizing this drives me to my knees in prayer for the Ephesians. Paul literally says, he says, it drives me to my knees. I kneel in prayer for you. You know what he's praying? Paul is praying that they would understand God's love. That they'd understand how tall it is. That they'd understand how wide it is. That they'd understand its breadth, but also its depth, because God's love is multidimensional. He loves you inside and out, upside and downside, top and bottom, side to side, front and back, through the marrow of your bones, through the deepest part of your spirit, in the innermost recesses of your mind. He loves you totally. Totally. And He's at work in you. And do we understand that God is able, God is able to do far more than we want, than we ask, than we need? Oh, Paul doesn't end it there. This overabundant God who lavishes, who's multidimensional, whose tall uh, love is high and wide and deep and breath, this effusively over-generous, overwhelming God is able to do far more exceedingly. Oh, he doesn't stop there. Far more exceedingly, abundantly more than anything you could ask for or anything you could think of. That's the power we're talking about. He can do exceedingly abundantly far more than anything you could ask or think of. That's this God beyond all names. Beyond all power. So, Paul says, all of this being true, how are we going to live? We're a bunch of believers who gather together on a Sunday morning. We're hearing Brother Paul. How are we going to live? Now remember this. Okay, here's what you got to remember. You've got to remember the following as you answer the question of how we ought to live. That God's already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You've already got them all. You need to remember that God has called you from before the beginning of time to be clean and holy. He's made that His work and His ambition in your life that He will see to fruition to make you clean and holy. Not only that, He's called you to be part of His family. Remember that. Remember that, that He's redeemed you and He's forgiven you of your sins. Remember that He's lavished His blessings and His grace. He's poured them to abundance. They overflow in your life. Remember that He's got a resurrection power at work in us. And most importantly, remember, he planned all of this before time ever began. Now, with all of that being true, how important really is it that we yell at the guy who cut us off on the road? 
how important is it really that we get our spouse or our co-worker or our friend to see things exactly the way we see them? How important is it really that we correct that misstatement someone just made? Now, Melna, are you elbowing Mike because he made the misstatement? Or are you elbowing him because he's been pointing out when you make the misstatement? Okay, he pleads the Fifth Amendment. Good lawyer. Okay, that's the question, and I love that because Mike and Melna are the perfect example of how all of us, not just them, I just picked them out because they're my buddies and they don't mind, but all of us do this. I mean, come on. How pity Annie, penny Annie, whatever the expression is, how silly must we look when we're all wrapped up and we're all, oh, I've been dealing with a fella who's got anger issues. I don't know how else to say it. And I've been having to deal with him for a while. And bless his heart, he needs to work on his anger issues. And I mean, I'm, I shouldn't throw rocks. I've got tons of my own issues to work on. But his is just real fresh in my mind right now. And I'm not saying when he gets angry, he doesn't have some legitimate gripes. But come on. There's something going on in this world far beyond the little thing that makes him angry. I had a wonderful meal the other night at these folks' restaurant. Pause. Over behind H-E-B on Studener and Luetta. If you haven't eaten there, go eat there. It's really good. Next to the Thies County Market. Is that right? Tice. Tice. Tice Thies. Rice. Reese. Um, I've eaten there a number of times. Never had any problem with my order. The other night, Stewart had butter on my sweet potato. I don't want butter on my sweet potato. So I picked it up and I threw it at him. No. <laughs> no. I just looked at him and I said, Hey, Stewart, man, I can't eat butter on here. I could have sworn I told you no butter, but regardless, I can't eat the butter. It's not that hard, is it? The fellow I've been dealing with the last week would have thrown it at him. In the grand scheme of life, the way God's made us, there are a few more important things than whether or not Stuart got the butter right on my sweet potato order. Aren't there? But for some of us, boy, that becomes the big issue. Paul says, now how are we going to live? Well, let me put some suggestions out there, he says. First of all, have a little humility. Don't start thinking you're uppity and you're something on a stick and you're special and you've got the big head. If you really start to think about the Creator God before the beginning of the world doing all of these things in and through you. It kind of puts you in your place. Not just humility, but have a little gentleness. Have a little patience. God's been working on you for eight gazillion years. You can hang on for a minute. 
God loves you enough to do all of this, why don't you have a little love in your life? And why on earth, if God's done this for all of us, do we act like we're different than anybody else in this family? See, there is one. There is one Lord. There is one body. There is one baptism. There is one faith. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one God. There is one Father. Why on earth do we act like we're all different in terms of Him. Now, are there differences in the church? Absolutely. When Christ ascended to heaven, He gave us gifts to make this body grow. And so you've got apostles in the church, you've got prophets, you've got shepherds, you've got evangelists, you've got teachers. That's not the complete list. There are lots of other people in lots of other roles all doing what God's called them to do to build up the body, but the body is one. There's one church. Oh, we've got a lot of denominations. But there is truly in heaven one kingdom of God that has all of the believers. That is the church. That is the body of Christ. That is the Lord's church. And we may have lots of different names that we help identify ourselves by on earth, but don't ever let us start thinking that those names make different churches. They don't. There's one body. So live different in the world. Live right. Be honest. Don't sin when you're upset and angry. Don't talk like trash. We don't need to be talking with coarse humor. We don't need to tell... I've got a friend. Anything for the joke. If it'll get a rise, he'll tell it without regard to how clean or proper or appropriate it is. We don't need to be that way. We're about something more. We're to be kind, we're to be tender-hearted, we're to be forgiving, we're to be loving. It is time for us to wake up. It is wake-up time to walk in the light. We used to be in the darkness, we're not in the darkness anymore, we're in the light. So we need to wake up and walk in it. Why on earth would you want to live in darkness? Walk in the light. Let it change the way you're... Don't go out and get drunk. That's got no business in... That's, that's not one of the good works God created you beforehand to do. Get intoxicated on His Spirit. Let God be what gets you through your day. Don't feel like you've got to go find a chemical solution. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of these guys where... Doctors say, hey, your serotonin level's off in your brain. You need to be taking this medicine. God's given us medicines. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying don't go self-medicate with a bunch of liquor just to deny reality and to phase your life out. Because you don't need to check out a life. You need to check into God. That's all I'm saying. Paul's not talking here about social drinking either. I'll say that at the risk of getting in trouble. He's talking about getting drunk. He's talking about drinking to excess. I dare say he could have talked about eating to excess. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad he didn't. I had seven rolls for breakfast. But we need to find our 
focus as God. God needs to define who we are, how we behave, what we do. And that's true all the way around. It's true in relationships. See, we submit to one another here, but, but take it on a smaller scale, look in relationships. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I've got a picture of the moon up there. Why? Who has ever seen the moon? Pretty bright some nights, isn't it? But the moon does not generate light on its own, does it? We learned in second or third grade that the moon's reflecting the light of the sun, isn't it? The light we see coming from the moon is really just bouncing off the moon. It's the sun's light bouncing off the moon. The moon's reflecting. That's the image Paul's using, in my opinion, in this passage on husbands and wives. See, Christ, when Christ was on earth, he was the moon. He reflected God, didn't he? God would have been the sun in that relationship. And Christ is the moon. So when you see Jesus, he says, what do you see? The Father. Because he's a reflection of the Father. Now, how did Jesus call the church to live? How did he call us to live? He called us to live like he did. He came and he showed us with example. Godly living. Jesus shines as the sun. And we, the church, his children are the moon. We reflect His holiness and His likeness, right? Okay. Women are to reflect their husbands in that sense. I think that's the submission idea here. But i got to tell you, husbands, that's why Paul says that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Christ didn't come down to the church and say, Submit to me or face my thunder! He came down and said, can I wash your feet? Can I die for you? Can I feed you? Can I cry for you? Can I show you I love you with every fiber of my being? Now, husbands, you treat your wives that way. And the wives have something to reflect. And wives, be attentive to it and reflect it. And where your husbands fail, don't say, huh, there you go, you just blew it. Because husbands are not Jesus, so try as we might to reflect his love. Now the same principle goes through. He says, children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise, to honor your father and mother, that your life will be long and it will go well with you. Now there comes a time and a place where children don't have to obey. I, I, Sarah is eight now, our daughter. Or she's nine, didn't she turn nine? She's nine. But when Sarah was seven, edit that one on the internet, when Sarah was seven, I was doing something she was not happy with. You know what she told me? I'm calling Mimi. And I said, why are you calling Mimi? She's your mother. I'm getting you in trouble. <laughs> she was calling my mother and telling my mother on me. There comes a time where you don't obey your parents, but there never comes a time when you quit honoring them. 
there never comes a time when you quit honoring them. Now, Paul doesn't have children that we know of. But Paul was an observer and he saw how sometimes parents don't treat their children quite right. He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. You know, God is our Father. He calls God our Father repeatedly. God's not out to exasperate us. He treats us with such love and kindness and discipline at the right times, too, but, but always out of love and always with a purpose. And He shows patience and He shows gentleness and unquestioned devotion. And that's how we need to parent our children. We need to do the same thing. Now, What's Paul see all day, every day while he's in Rome? What's chained to him 24-7? A Roman guard. Don't you know Paul had some conversations with them? Why are you wearing that get up? So go ahead, tell me about your what you got on. Why, why, why you got that uh, belt thing going? You know, what do you do when people say you wear a dress? Uh, Paul was acutely aware and probably had the soldiers telling him, you know, this shield saved my life one time in Egypt. Or, you know, this is the helmet. The only reason I'm here today to guard you is because this helmet took a rock that was meant for my head. And Paul, no doubt, 24-7 chained to a Roman soldier, thought about how that would apply to us. And he tells us, he says, get your garb on. And stand up. You're not a whipped puppy against Satan. You stand up. You're a child of the king. When you stand up, have that belt of truth. When you stand up, have that breastplate of righteousness. Not your own. This is a real good one. When you stand up, have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. When you stand up, have the helmet of salvation. When you stand up, have the sword of the Spirit. When you stand up, have the shield of faith that will extinguish the fiery darts of Satan. You go into battle with Jesus Christ above you, in you, under you, around you. You go into battle knowing His Word. i got a challenge for you. Memorize a passage of Scripture. Make God's Word part of your heart and part of your mind. Uh, we're not in Bible school anymore. We don't do memory verses. Store up the Word of God. Commit that you're going to make something to memory. Find you a Scripture. It can be Jesus wept. But find you a Scripture that you're going to commit to memory that you don't already have. Even if you're my grandmother at 91 years old, find you a scripture and commit it to memory that you don't already have. And chew on it and dwell on it. And let the Word of God permeate who you are. Points for home. Number one, I like that Paul says, remembering you in my prayers. And the prayer that he offers in Ephesians 1 is a prayer that's wonderful. And I urge you, if you've got anyone you know or love that you pray for, pray this prayer for them. Let Paul lead you in prayer for your friends or loved ones. Let Just go to Ephesians 1.17 and pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give whoever you're praying for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know 
the hope to which God has called them. That they may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That they may know the immeasurable greatness of God, your power towards us who believe. Pray it. Find somebody. Pray it. Pray it for your kids. Pray it for your spouse. Pray it for your parents. Pray it for your neighbors. Your whoever. Pray it for me. Next. You were dead in your sins. Now there are three basic views of the human condition that I've been able to determine as I classify things and talk to people. Some people think we're doing pretty good. It's just a matter of time. Human race is getting better and people are getting better. Everything is a-okay. I might tweak it here, tweak it there, but things are fine. Then there's a second view. No, things aren't fine. We're sick. We're sick. We need some doctrine. We need some medicine. We need some help. The human condition is a sick condition. We need some medical intervention. Then there's a third view. We're not well. We're not sick. We're dead. It's not nurses back to health. It's dead. That's Paul's. Paul's is not, well, it's not sick. It's dead. you got to get born again. you got to have new life. you got to have resurrection power. You've got to have faith and affiliation with Jesus Christ and His death and His burial and His resurrection. And then, let's imitate God. Let's walk like he walks. Let's talk like he talks. Oh, it'll be a pretty paltry imitation. But by the strength of his spirit, by his power, which is resurrection power, by his plan, which is to do these good works through you, through all of that, it will be amazing to see what he does. So let's put his power to the test. Let's put God to work in our lives and say, I'm ready, Lord, to imitate you. Please help me. And let's make that our purpose and our goal as believers. Would you pray with me? Lord, we lift up each other to you right now. And I pray for this class that the eyes of their heart and their spirit may be enlightened to know the glorious depths and riches to which you have called them. That they'll know how deep and how high and how wide your love is for them. And Lord, that you will move in our hearts to call us beyond the petty, beyond the moment, beyond the unimportant, into an eternal perspective of who You are and what You've done. Lord, with the humility that it comes with for us, we pray that You make us kind and gentle and peaceful and patient people. That the world will be amazed. That our co-workers will be amazed. That our spouse will be amazed. And people will come asking us in this class, what has happened to you? And then, Lord, give us the clarity and opportunity to tell them about your resurrection power in our lives. Thank you for calling us into your family. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our redemption, our forgiveness. Amen.